As we come this morning back to the book of Romans, I want to look with a little more detail uh, back over things that we have been considering here in the book of Romans. Uh, we remember these major sections as they are laid out for us by the Apostle Paul, the universal need of the gospel, the forgiving grace or justification, the transforming grace of the gospel or sanctification, the international defense of the gospel, both Jew and Gentile, or to have the gospel brought to them. And then as we have seen in uh, recent months, the life-changing relevance of the gospel. Uh, please give attention to Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So what we find in Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, is this appeal, think on what God has done. He has justified us, he has sanctified us, he has had the gospel to be sent out to the ends of the earth, for which we are glad. And then the counterpart of God having done what he has done is that he asks us to give our bodies as a living sacrifice in verse 1, and then he asks that our minds be transformed so that we will not be conformed to the thinking and the way of the world. This body, this mind being given to God is first of all uh, requires in us a humility. And isn't it interesting? I need you to give yourself to God. And the first thing on the list is that we're not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And he argues for our humility because of the diversity of function in the body, the profound unity of the body. It's not just you, it's not just me, it is us as the many a part of one body because of the source of the gifts in the body. If you have anything, don't get proud because God is the one who gave it to you because of the loving service within the body. The next thing that this giving ourselves, our bodies and our minds to God is that there needs to be a self-denying love to the church. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love, the philos and the storge brought together, love one another with a brotherly affection. Three of the four terms that appear in all of the New Testament are all found in this verse. So what we have, beginning at verse 9, and then running really through the end of this chapter, is an unfolding of what it means to have this kind of love. It's principled, it's genuine, it's righteous, it's affectionate, it is respectful. Growing out of this requirement of love, we are to serve our brothers and sisters, we are to stay the course against the world, 
and we are to show sensitivity to our brothers and sisters. So what does it mean if we give ourselves to God? Humility. What else does it mean? Love for the people of God, but that's not enough. It's a self-denying love even to those who hate us and to those who mistreat us. We see how this theme begins in verse 14, love your enemy by blessing. And as we come on to verse 17, you see it there, repay no one evil for evil. Somebody's giving you evil. Somebody's giving you calamity and problems. Verse 19, don't avenge yourself. Somebody's done something against you, but don't repay them. Leave it to God. Then again in verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, you're going to have an enemy. How are you going to respond to that enemy? And then verse 21, do not be overcome by evil. There, is, there are waves of difficulty that may come to us. We're not to allow that evil to overwhelm us and dictate our lives. Now, we have to appreciate the difference between myself as a private individual and that which is going to happen in the public sphere. In Romans 13, we're just verses away from it. In Romans 13, Paul is going to say that the civil government bears the sword and not in vain. The civil governor has the right to use the sword on someone. But that is exactly the opposite of what you and I have as individuals. So in this paragraph, 17 through 21, Paul is talking to us as individual, private citizens. We do not have the right to take the sword out and to deal with someone simply because they have wronged us. When it comes to me as an individual, I am to show kindness, I am to show love, and that's the thrust here of Professor Murray's uh, quote, which I've kind of talked through. Suffice it to to, to say that I, as a private individual, cannot take up the sword and lop off someone's head. And in the same way, the civil government has been given the sword for public good And the civil government can't lay it down. We can't swap it. We have to stay in our lanes and do what God would have us to do. Well, with that, let's uh, come uh, to the uh, outline that you may have in your hands if you care to use it. First of all, Roman number one, as we look at verse 17. And as we begin, let me say that as you just look at that paragraph and you see the common theme of how we deal with evil, we're not to repay evil. And then verse 21, ending with, we're not to be overwhelmed with evil, but rather uh, we are to overcome it. We want to consider this. I'd like to consider it all in one message, uh, but that does not seem wise. So we're going to break it morning and evening and keep the flow of thought. Hopefully you won't forget too much and I won't forget too much between this morning and this evening. Roman number one, 
the prohibition of vindictiveness, vengeance, retaliation. First of all, A, we have the awareness of our present evil world. And the awareness of our present evil world is going to help us to see that we live in a present evil age. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. It's assumed that someone is going to give you something that you don't like, something that you don't deserve. Paul speaks of Jesus, Galatians 1.4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. This world is dominated by sin, and we are not to allow that sin to dominate us. We have Jesus saying in John 15, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me first. There is this conflict, the child of God and the world, this present evil age. Jesus, teaching of the eight indispensable traits of a true Christian, the eighth and the final is that we are persecuted for righteousness' sake. There are those who utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, and yet we're not to get upset by that. We are to recognize what God is going to do for us in the course of time. And then remember our Lord's prayer to his Father, where he says, Lord, they're not of the world. And there's this pressure that's coming from the world. But then he goes on to pray that you, Father, would keep them from the evil one. So when it comes to our interaction with this present evil world, and right now I think that if I went around the room and said to anyone over 15, probably those under 15 as well, who is it? that has done something wrong to you, that you would immediately have someone come to the fore of your mind. And, and some, some might have, well, how can I limit it to just one of you? I'm, I'm seeing a whole group. We live in a present evil world, but Jesus has prayed that our faith would not fail he prayed this while he was on earth, and we have reason to believe that he still prays this while he is there in heaven. And so though we live in a present evil world, we have an all-powerful Savior who has been praying for us. That's the awareness of our present evil age. Come now, secondly, B, to the strong natural bent to get even. Revenge. Vengeance, retaliation, vindictiveness. Calvin, commenting on a later verse in this paragraph, says, Almost all men have a furious passion for revenge. You do this wrong thing to me. I may think about it for a little while, but I'm going to come up with something to repay what you have done to me. Listen to just how frequently this theme is dealt with 
in the scriptures. It must be a real problem. You and I are not the only ones who ever lived who had this feeling of, I want to get even. Solomon, Proverbs 20, verse 22. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. And isn't that, in Proverbs 20, isn't that really the sum of what's going on in this paragraph in Romans 12? Don't repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. Listen to the Lord Jesus. Matthew 5, verse 38, Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. There is the saying, there will be tit for tat. You bring the tat of trouble to me, I'm going to bring the tit of trouble back to you. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 15, see that no one repays anyone for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Do you see the importance of that distinction? The, the distinction between what I do as a private individual, Romans 12, 17 through 21, towards my enemy, and on the other hand, what the civil governor does, and if I would happen to be the civil governor, then I have a responsibility for all of the society that I represent to not bear that sword in vain. It's altogether different. We have to appreciate that. If we don't, we're going to be confused. Why is Paul contradicting in chapter 13 what he has just said in chapter 12, 17 through 21? Listen to Peter. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, Bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Have you ever gotten involved in a little bit of a quarrel, a little bit of an argument, and, and all of a sudden you, you, you find yourself really bent out of shape and really angry? You're really out. It doesn't matter that I'm out of line. You started it. And if you start the evil, then I have the right and the privilege to expand on the evil and give it right back to you. Have you ever used that argument in an argument? Have you used that as a reason? Well, you started it. Paul's taking that away from us, isn't he? You started it. It doesn't really matter. Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling. Listen to how Peter goes on. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So I'd like to suggest to you, it really doesn't matter 
if we are looking at Proverbs 20 and verse 22 and we're listening to Solomon, or we're going to Matthew chapter 5 and we're listening to the Lord Jesus, or we're going to Paul and 1 Thessalonians 5 or Romans 12, or we're going with Peter to 1 Peter 3, in each of these there is a common theme. When evil is done to us, we need by the grace of God to rise above that and show grace when evil is being shown to us. Do you need God to help you with that? Well, let's look further in the passage. So we've seen the awareness of our present evil age, the strong natural bent to get even. Now, thirdly, see the Christian response of agape love. That theme started in verse 9 and 10. Love the church. Now it's breaking out further. Love those more broadly in society, even those who are nasty to you. This whole practical section is about how we respond to one another in love. We had on the screen as we began Romans 12, verse 9 and 10, that says, let love be genuine. But this practical section begins chapter 12, verse 1, runs all the way over through chapter 15. And I want you to bear in mind, maybe you even want to turn there, Romans 13 and verse 8. We deal with how we show love to our enemy, and then we hear about the civil magistrate, how God has appointed them, verses 1 through 6 of 1 through 7 of Romans 13. And then Romans 13 and verse 8, what do we come back to? Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Then he lists out several of the second table of the law and says at the end of verse 9, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10, love does, does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And then if we fast forward further to Romans chapter 14, and here in Romans chapter 14, what are we dealing with? We're we're dealing with, I'm a Christian, and there is a weaker brother or a weaker sister, and they have a different view on some things than I do. How do I interact with that one who's got some weirdo wacko views? on this practical matter. Well, I don't call them weirdo wacko for one thing. Romans 14 in verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Well, so let's imagine for a moment that you're someone who doesn't like to hear about self-denying love. Well, have you got a problem with Paul? Because Paul is going to let you have it in Romans 12, and then he's going to let us have it again in Romans 13, 8 to 10. And when it comes, how we interact with those who have different views on what we should eat or what we should drink, how in your response here, How is that that you are walking in love? So this whole section is about how we love one another, how we relate to our enemies. Think again of of Jesus 
And I want you to turn with me here to Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. I've referred to some earlier verses. Let's read this paragraph together. Matthew 5, verse 43. This is not Solomon. This is not just Peter. This is not just Paul, the Lord himself. Matthew 5, 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your enemy, love your neighbor, and hate your enemy. That's okay. You got an enemy, he deserves your hate. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And let's be honest. This is one of the most difficult things to do in all of the Christian life. And if you can actually get the words of a prayer to come up out of you, the right heart attitude may not be attached even to those words, but it's at least a start. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Verse 45, why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And what is one of the marks of our heavenly Father's perfection? One of his marks is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. God looks at that sinful mass of the world a bunch of worms made by God that are spitting their venom back at God and God doesn't backhand them into destruction, but rather God says in his love, what can I do to help? I know what. I'll give them my only son. And then I'll backhand them in hell. No. I will give them my only son so that they will not perish but have everlasting life. So godly, God rightly cursed man, but here is the wonder of the gospel that God looks right through those sinners that he has made He knows everything about their rebellion. He's not taken by surprise at all. And then he gives his son in their place. And now Paul is bringing this to bear on us as believers. Think of the mercies of God. You've got to give your body to God. You've got to give your mind to God. And part of being like the Father in heaven is that you look on someone who wants to spit in your face or who has spit in your face and your arm is already feeling like it wants to get caught and you say no. 
I have to do something other. I can't respond in an evil way. I've got a father who loved me when I was disgusting. And he sent his son. And it's not enough for me to receive that forgiveness from my father. I have to receive that forgiveness and it needs to suffuse my inner being so that I'm able to be something like my heavenly father. And I think we all agree it makes good sense, doesn't it? God wants us to bear the family likeness. But that does not make it easy. Leon Morris says Paul is calling on them, us, to live out the implications of the gospel. Their lives are to be lived on such a high plane that even the heathen will recognize the fact They will always be living in the sight of non-Christians, and the way they live should be such as to commend the essential Christian message. Somebody has hurt you. Somebody has hurt me. People are looking on. Our response is to be one where the unregenerate in the world says, I would not have necessarily thought of that response, but that was a very loving response. Wow. And you and I need to be concerned about our testimonies, don't we? Sometimes we say, well, don't worry about what man thinks. Well, there's a certain aspect of truth in that. But there's also a sense, Proverbs 3, let not... Steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Hang on to steadfast love. In the very next verse, Proverbs 3, verse 4, so that you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Matthew 5, verse 16. You're you're going to be the salt of the earth. You're going to be the light of the world. You're going to be that preservative influence. You're going to direct them to the answers of the light of the world. Verse 16, in the same way, Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We have to think about our testimonies. We have to think about our testimonies even to our enemies. We need to think about our testimonies to whoever is witnessing what he or she did to you or me and how we respond back to that. All men. It's the requirement here of our passage. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And it's not that you have to do a survey and put it on my Facebook page. What do you think I should do in this situation? And this is what, how I know what is, no. We do self-denying love, self-denying agape love. And if we do that, then those looking on will say, man, they didn't retaliate in anger, didn't get bitter, didn't, didn't bring a lawsuit. But they responded in a kind and loving way. May God 
be praised. So there is the prohibition of vindictiveness. Let's come to Roman numeral two, the positive requirement of making peace. Verse 11, first of all, A, the universal duty of peacemaking. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Live peaceably with all. Somebody has wronged you. You're not to pay evil back to them. Even more than that, you are to make peace. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This is, this is not a verse that you can pull out of its paragraph. This is a, it's not to be lifted out of its context and applied over here. Well, if somebody is nice to me, then I'll show peace to them. No, it's in a situation where people are being nasty to you. And perhaps nasty for no cause. And you may feel like fighting, but you're not going to repay evil. More than that, here's the positive requirement. You're not going to punch them. That's verse 17. But verse 18 is you're going to bake them a cake or something like that. Matthew 5 and verse 9 Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Hebrews 12, verse 14, strive for peace with everyone in the church. All the problems of the Corinthian church, super apostles, all the grief they brought to the apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 13 ends with this, verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. What's a holy kiss? Well, I don't know if I can tell you, but I can tell you what it's not. When Judas kissed Jesus, that was not a holy kiss. That was a hypocritical kiss. That was a lying kiss. The kiss in itself is to convey, you are my friend and I have goodwill towards you. But that's not what was really in Judas's heart. So make sure that your kiss or whatever it is that you do that is a nice action, make sure that it's not a lie. It's an expression of goodwill from my heart. Greet one another with a holy kiss within the church. Now outside the church, Jesus, Luke 6, 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind and ungrateful to the ungrateful and the evil. One writes, we do not live in an ideal world. Do not repay evil to those who do evil to you. We do not live in an ideal world, but we live in a world that is per peopled by sinners. And God is expecting you and me to live this out in a context where someone is 
nasty to you. But God will help us. The fruit of the Spirit is peace. Listen to Calvin. Peaceableness in a life so ordered as to render us beloved by all is no common gift in a Christian. If we desire to attain this, we must not only be endured, endued with a perfect uprightness, but also with a very courteous, with very courteous and kind manners. What's he saying? You want to fulfill the responsibility of this paragraph? You have got to be someone that has a godly life. Not perfect. But you're not causing the strife. A perfect life. But and then he says, this kind of individual is going to be making peace, must be very courteous and very kind in the matters. You don't say stuff in a caustic sort of tone. Well, that's not a peacemaker, is it? Is Calvin talking about you? Someone who has a righteous character and, and then just is a very kind individual, very proper. In, in their manners, they're not responding with evil. They're just putting a person at ease. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Our universal duty. And now secondly, be the limitation from our enemy's willingness. We're to make peace. But does Paul say that we're all going to be 100% successful in making peace in our lives? Well, no, because he says, if possible. There's two qualifications here. If possible, so far as it depends on you. So there is B, the limitation from our enemy's willingness. You may be very, 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 very willing to make peace, but if your enemy is not going to respond in a gracious way, it's not going to happen. So far as it depends on you. But what we see from this is that we are never to be the individuals that cause the disruption. We're working on peace. But you are not omnipotent to guarantee that the peace is going to be there. Listen to the psalmist. Psalm 120 and verse 6. Too long I have my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. They just don't like me. They are committed to war. And it's very sad in the church, isn't it? It's very sad when we read in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 5 and 6, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. This verse didn't used to make sense to me. It makes more sense to me now. 
where he goes on the very next verse to say, you got to think about your testimony when you go start a lawsuit. He says in the next verse, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. If your great goal is to have the gospel of Jesus Christ reaching out to every sphere around you, and you're involved in a lawsuit, the, the nerve of your evangelism just got cut. And we understand that. Why not rather suffer wrong, Paul says. Well, they hurt me. This guy in the church, he hurt me. And he's going to have to pay me back for what he's hurt me for. To the selfish Christian, this passage does not make sense. But to the Christian who understands that all of our time here on earth is simply a preparation for eternity, then it can make more sense. Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? Remember again, the psalmist did his part. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. If possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all, but your enemy may not be willing to make peace. But you certainly must be. Thirdly, see, another limitation. The limitation from our biblical principles. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This is not a peace at all, at all costs, is it? One has written, as far as it depends on you, includes the thought you, being who you are, someone redeemed by Christ and called to live in his service. You can't say, well, I so much desire to have peace with my enemy, I'm going to chuck the Bible. I'm going to chuck all of biblical principles. Well, what's that going to do? Your goal is to bring the gospel to them. It's not going to do you any good to make some kind of the appearance of peace while you're throwing away biblical principle. Think of Jesus. I didn't come to establish peace on the earth. I came to bring the sword during this period of time. There will be enemies. There will be enemies that are a part of your own household. Let's embrace it. Stuart Elliott writes, of course, in an evil world, it is not always possible to live at peace with others. And this explains why the apostle phrases his instruction as he does. If possible, so far as depends on you. For instance, when truth is at stake, a believer may have to take action which will cause him to be unpopular and even hated. In such circumstances, it would be impossible for him to live at peace with others. Nevertheless, the apostle is making it plain that a believer must have no taste for discord. 
He is to do everything in his power to live at peace with other men and women. We must stand for God's truth. Someone may say to you, as I believe some have heard from their mothers as they are grown, they're wanting to honor father and mother even in adult years, and they would hear something like, you could make family peace if you would just go to church where you used to go. If you would just come home to the Roman Catholic Church and let us worship together. Well, no, 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 Mom, there's this thing called transubstantiation. Where the, the bread and the wine, it, it, it tastes like bread and wine, but it's somehow magically turned into the blood of Christ. And there's a re-sacrifice of mom. There's some situations where you can't make peace. We can be gracious, we can be patient, but we can't give up God's truth. We must stand for God's standard of right and wrong. Remember that passage which we already looked at, Romans 13 and verse 8. Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For the commandments, the seventh, you shall not commit adultery. The sixth, you shall not murder. The eighth, you shall not steal. The tenth, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Whatever peace we are working on, Romans 12, 17 through 21, is not going to violate what Paul gives in Romans 13. The coach asks you to make peace for the team by showing up for a Sunday game. It's a makeup. We need you. The whole team needs you. Coach, I'm for peace. I'm for team unity. But I'm more for being salt and light in the world. And Jesus Christ is my Lord. Coach, I can't give up the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are what I want to use in evangelizing you and helping you to see your sin before a righteous God. How can I give up the Ten Commandments and turn around then and try and evangelize? Verse 18 underscores the balance of the Christian life. You can't have a a glib view of the Christian life and you, you don't really have to think about what you need to do. If possible, as much as depends on you, live at peace with all. It's not just live at peace with all men. There are these balancing qualifications. And one thing I should make plain is that one of those balancing qualifications, as much as depends on you, well, everybody knows I'm an angry person. So I guess we're not going to have peace. We would have peace, except for what depends on me, on angry me. No, that's not what Paul means. 
God expects us to hear a command like this, to think through and seek to make peace. But we have to keep in mind that if the enemy is an enemy because the enemy is a part of the world, we remember that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one, and that does not mean that we're going to have a guaranteed peace. Well, let's close with D, the foundation of our peacemaking. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Make peace. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with all. So how do we become a son or daughter of God that is able to make peace? Well, I invite you to Listen to Luke 18, where Jesus dealt with a rich young ruler. The ruler came to him and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Indicates some confusion in his thinking. And notice what Jesus does. He says to the rich young ruler, You are a guilty and blind sinner. And he does this by denying that there are such is such a category of good men. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. What he's driving at is the thinking of this rich young ruler that he is, what are the commandments? Oh, I've kept all these from my youth up. You are a guilty and blind sinner, Jesus is saying as he lists the commandments. He lists commandment number five, six, seven, eight, and nine. What are those commandments known as? They're known as the second table of the law, five to ten. This Jewish young man would know that Jesus left out the tenth commandment. Jesus just lists them. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. And the young man is thinking, I've done this for my youth up. His externalized understanding of it. Do not steal. Oh, no, I haven't stolen. Do not bear false witness. How can anyone in the right mind think that he has kept that from his youth up? That he has never lied? Honor your father and your mother. You children sitting here this morning. Do you believe that you have never violated the fifth commandment? Honor your father and your mother? But the rich young ruler's wrong answer comes out. All I have kept from my youth. You see what he's really saying? I am good. And Jesus knows this. He knows it before he really gets into the conversation with him. He can see the heart. So then he says to him, you are a guilty and blind sinner from my applying the 10th commandment. Do you know what the 10th commandment is? You shall not covet. You're not to covet your neighbor's wife. You're not to covet your neighbor's house. And the thing about the 10th commandment is that it's not something external. And it shows us that if we understand the commandment, do no murder as long as I have not put the knife in the individual, I have not murdered. No, no. If you've hated in your mind, 
you violated that commandment. Coveting is not something that's done out in the open. It's in the heart. It's in the mind. So he says to him, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. But when he, the young man, heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. My money or Jesus? It'll be my money. And he went away sad. But further, Jesus says to that young man, and he says to you, if you're outside of Christ this morning, you are a guilty and dead sinner. As he speaks of the impossibility of us saving ourselves. How difficult it is for those who are rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And if we're talking about an eye of the needle in the first century, it may be a small little gate next to the main gate. After hours, the gate is closed. We're not opening the gate till tomorrow morning. You want in, you want your stuff in, take your stuff off of your camel, hand it in. And then if your camel can get down, and on all fours kind of crawl through the gate, then your camel can come in. Otherwise, he's out. Not all camels can do that. It's not easy for someone to be converted. The disciples respond hearing this. Then who can be saved? And Jesus says what is impossible with man is possible with God. I would have you to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it starts by you seeing your need of Jesus. You have sinned. You have lied. You have had impure thoughts. You have wanted what belongs to someone else. And once you carefully start looking at your life in light of those commandments, then you'll see that you are dreadfully falling short. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You must see that you need to bow before Jesus as Lord. It's all of Jesus or nothing. Well, I got all this money, Jesus. I don't want to give up all my stuff in order to have you as my master and Lord. Well, go on down the way. You know what you need to do. And he went away sad. See that you must be born again. You can't do it yourself. You can't go through the eye of a small needle of your camel. It's not easy to get through there. And they understood that what is impossible with man is possible with God. You and I can't fix ourselves. Even the rich young ruler who is understanding the commandments and he's so blind All these commandments I have kept from my youth up. No, you haven't. Not on your life. You must be born again. You need the Holy Spirit to give you understanding so you can even understand what the gospel is. You need the Holy Spirit to give you life. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. 
Talk to Jesus. I would have you talk to Jesus right now. Know that he is listening. Tell him you're not good. And tell him why you're not good. Tell him as you need his Holy Spirit to give you life. Tell him that you trust him and you believe in him. And if you'll do that much, you have this promise. Jesus will not refuse you. For the one who believes, the one who comes to me, Jesus said, comes to me by faith, that one I will never cast out. Let's pray. Father, we find in this portion of your word the tremendous challenge here, because of the mercies of God, we're to give our bodies, we're to give our minds to you. And part of giving ourselves to you is living for your glory and being made in your image. Part of us being your child, Heavenly Father, is that we would look on the sinful mass of humanity, the world, those who hate you and those who hate us, and instead of being vindictive and retaliatory, instead of wanting to get even, we want to turn them from enemies into friends. Friends because they love your son, the Lord Jesus, as well. Lord, this is challenging. Many of us have known these verses for years and years and in a sense have just kind of tried to stay away from them because they're too demanding on our inner spirits. But here it is, verse after verse. We pray that you'd help us to graciously respond to your word and we pray that your Holy Spirit would come and work in those around us that we love. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, let's sing in closing the hymn that is on the screen, hymn number 609, Why Should Cross and Trial Grieve Me? 609 in the red. Standing as we sing.